Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Welcome to this episode of Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'm your host, Chessie Greenham, and tonight I'll be talking to Luke McLinden from the University of Nottingham. Hi, Luke. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Please, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, of course. Um, So I'm a veterinary student at the University of Nottingham um, with an interest in infectious disease and bacteriology. Um, I've recently completed an integrated master's of research investigating the host and molecular mechanisms that contribute towards the persistence of equine strangles. So my research involved an in-depth evaluation of the strangle screening protocol over a five-year period and also performing long-read sequencing on both acute and persistent Streptococcus equi isolates. Um, I also sit on the RCVS Education Committee as a student representative. Sounds like it keeps you very busy. Yes, <laughs> Tonight we will be discussing your review article, um, Advances in the Understanding, Detection and Management of Equine Strangles. Uh, strangles is a disease that all equine vets have come across at some point in their career uh, caused by Streptococcus, Streptococcus equi, which was first reported 750 years ago, making it a condition that's affected equines for centuries. Could you explain to us how the bacteria is spread and what makes it such a successful pathogen? Um, yeah, of course. So Streptococcus equi, subspecies equi, is, as you say, a really successful pathogen. It was first reported um, the disease over 750 years ago. The bacteria was first identified in 1888, but again, thought to be around much longer. Um, and it's really, its success can be pinned down to this ability to go in to cause this carrier state in some animals, um, which allows the infection to spread to unexposed animals and um, the bacteria to propagate. So it survives in the guttural pouch in a really low nutrient state and intermittently shedding into the environment. So this, as I say, allows the organism to spread to naive individuals. Um, and this sort of ability to cause both acute and persistent disease is thought to be responsible for its continued spread. Um, and more work in recent years, including some of the work that I've been doing, has been looking at the genome of Streptococcus equi um, and trying to understand whether and how the, uh, the genomic elements of strep equi um, dictate its functions and whether that gives any clues into how to um, control it. So when um, we, as a lab, were performing long read sequencing, so nanopore sequencing, of Streptococcus equi isolates um, at both acute and persistent phases, so from the same animal but over a different period of time. So one was taken at the start of the infection and then a later sample, you know, maybe six months, a year later, when that infection had become persistent. Um, and we saw that there were clear genetic differences between these um, isolates, uh, including deletions of key genes that can contribute to virulence, um, and also inversions of certain genes, which might suggest a sort of on-off switch, allowing it to sort of um, change phase when it's in um, the guttural pouch. And it just sort of suggests that this whole process of um, becoming an acute to a carrier is a bit more uh, complex, maybe more nuanced than was previously been thought. And maybe that sort of simplistic delineation doesn't quite reflect the complexity of the um, guttural pouch environment. 
that's so interesting. It certainly sounds very adaptable, um, as you've described there. Could you list an example of how a horse might present then following infection with this bacteria? So kind of common clinical signs. Yeah. So it's um, it's such an old disease, it's also quite well documented. So the most common clinical signs are the same now as they were in 1664 in um, French veterinary texts. So the top three are pyrexia, um, eucoprolent nasal discharge and lymph node abscessation. So the submandibular and retropharyngeal lymph nodes. Um, and as I say, that was true back in 1600. And it's also true when we look at um, more modern surveillance data. So there was a study in 2021, which um, was focusing on all lab samples between 2015 and 2019. And again, those three clinical signs were the most common. Um, it can present differently. So it can have... Um, more generalised respiratory signs, pharyngeal swelling, coughing, lethargy, inappetence. Um, and in persistent cases, you might get things like chondroids or maybe you might have um, remnants of, of pus in the guttural pouch. But on the whole, um, those three clinical signs, pyrexia, nasal discharge and lymph node abscessation are what you'd be looking for. And um, just to say pyrexia is the uh, most common and it's also the most important to be looking for for example in an outbreak because it often well it, it will precede shedding of um strep equi so if you're you see a shoot in temperature then you know this horse is likely being exposed and you can try and manage that accordingly okay so could you so would every single horse go through pyrexia or do you see different signs between different cases um in an acute infection Pyrexia is most commonly recorded. I, I wouldn't be able to say for sure every single horse, but um, you know it's an infection, and, and quite often that is what happens in these sort of bacterial infections. It would be different if maybe um, animals had certain um, immunity, or uh, maybe maternal or residual antibodies, and they might go through a milder presentation of the disease, um, which is you know known as atypical strangle. So not necessarily every animal. Because um, it will depend on the bacterial strain, on the levels of host immunity, um, and also the infective dose. Okay. And you mentioned earlier um, the term carrier. Um, could you maybe define this term to us and what you mean when you're using the term carrier in regards to strangles cases? Yeah. Um, so actually writing this article was a quite nice opportunity to suggest the definition for the term carrier. Because you look across studies and across the literature and, um, you know, you quite often get different definitions everywhere you look. And each study sort of defines it a slightly different way. Um, so we tried to create a more general definition. So we define a carrier as an equid which has uh, a viable population of streptococcus equi persisting in its guttural pouch, which continues to shed either intermittently or continuously following the apparent resolution of infection. Um, and then where you go from that, you might think you could um, you could um, sort of create categories from there. So it might be based on signs of infection. Um, so whether there are chondroids or whether there are um, any abnormalities of the guttural pouch that might be indicative of an infection whether it's about immune status, uh, serological status, um, or simply how long that infection has been persisting. 
It might also be linked to diagnostics. So as I said, seropositivity might be one indicator, but also a CT value from a PCR infection. Um, although that might be quite a simplistic um, sort of way of categorizing those cases since CT values, um, you can't always infer that much about the viability or the infectivity of any bacteria which is recognized on the PCR test. Okay. So are horses, is there any work that shows then whether horses are predisposed to being carriers, sorry, or is it that the strain of bacteria they've been infected with is adapted to enable this carrier state? So it's a good question. Um, and there's not really anything to suggest that any particular horses are predisposed to carriers. Um, so one part of my research was looking at a strangled screening protocol. Um, so at a rescue centre over a five-year period with about 650 animals being admitted over that time. Um, and from there, there were about 40 animals which were found to be carriers. And we did quite a thorough examination um, looking for associations between breed, age, sex, body condition, score, and also looking for any associations with haematology or biochemistry markers. Um, and we found no association. We weren't particularly expected to find an association. Um, sometimes immunity has been linked to carrier status, so a lessened immunity, which might be maybe related to a lower body condition score, um, but nothing really significant, nothing that would make you think, oh, this is you know, a, a indicative of a strangled carrier. Um, Management-related factors have been found before. Um, so it might be your type of work or your exposure risk, but on the whole, there are no um, associations um, of host factors and carrier status. Okay. And you mentioned in your review that carriers don't continuously shed into the environment. Is there any kind of evidence or work that's been shown to indicate what makes them start shedding? Like, is it a stressor that the horse goes through that then creates that, car that carrier status horse to start shedding again? Or is it that they just periodically do? Um, as far as I'm aware, it's not known. Um, and it's sort of your guess is as good as mine, whether it's stress related, whether it is um, related to the bacteria, whether it's related to these um, genomic changes I mentioned earlier with genes sort of being switched on or off or genes being deleted. Um, it, it's really hard to say. And I think it's something that a lot of research is going into. Oh, interesting. Um, earlier on as well, you used the term atypical when talking about kind of presentation of strangles. Could you maybe talk us through the difference between kind of typical and atypical cases? Yeah, of course. Um, so atypical strangles probably isn't the best term for it, because if you think atypical, you sort of think of something which has, I know it's something that looks quite different from a typical strangles case, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, so atypical strangles is used to describe like a milder presentation of disease in which the clinical signs are lessened or they're absent. Um, so this was sort of thought to be quite a different um, presentation quite different to typical strangles. But I think more recently it's been come to understood as more of a spectrum of disease with a range of clinical severities um, and also different clinical signs. So strangles will often just present as a generalized respiratory infection and won't have those typical clinical signs. 
um, but it, it's not really a clear one or the other. It's more of a sliding scale. Um, but crucially, atypical or typical, um, any severity of a disease is not predictive if, of infectivity. So an animal with a milder presentation can still go on to cause more se- severe disease in other animals. So am I right in thinking then that an atypical presentation would be less, uh, would be due to the less due to the horse's immunity and more due to the virulence of the strain of bacteria that they've come across? Uh, it's probably an interplay between the two. So it may well be residual immunity. Um, there's been a bit of work looking at um, colostral antibodies and maternal antibodies, which might provide some protection. Um, also about infective dose. So if you look at vaccine challenge studies, often the dose are in the order of hundreds of thousands times higher than the minimum infective dose. So there really is a wide range of um, of, of doses which which can infect, um, and then also related to yeah the virulence of that particular bacterial strain. So it it can be a few things at play at once. Interesting. Thank you for talking us through that. Um, could you now talk us through maybe some of the complications that are seen from strangles infection? Yeah, so uh, strep equi has the potential to spread um, via lymphatics, um, via the bloodstream, by septic focus, or by direct aspiration. So they can virtually cause abscesses at any, amateur, any anatomical site. So it might be the lung, mesentery, liver, spleen, kidney, brain, um, and with the clinical signs would then be dependent on these locations. Um, the complications, they range between sort of 2 to 28% to an outbreak. So it's quite variable and quite poorly documented. And um, there's been some suggestion that maybe this is more uh, also publication bias. These cases are more interesting and get published more. Um, and again, the um, predisposition to these might be things like an elevated infectious dose or increased virulence of that particular strain, um, or on the flip side, uh, insufficient immune response that is unable to keep that infection under control and it doesn't stay in the guttural pouch. Um, so that's known as uh, bastard strangles. And again, that's been documented since the 1600s. The um, other types of complications you get, so you um, can get this hypersensitivity reaction, type 3 hypersensitivity reaction, papura hemorrhagica, um, which is secondary to immune complex deposition. Um, and that can also be a side effect of some of the live attenuated vaccines, which are sometimes used in the US, um, or any sort of M protein-based vaccines. And you can also get myopathies, um, so infarctions um, or atrophies. But the muscle infarctions um, are an extreme presentation of the papura hemorrhagica, where the um, immune complex deposition and vasculitis happens within muscles, which leads to necrosis. Um, All these complications do increase mortality and have quite a guarded prognosis. Okay, and is there much information on reinfection rates following a, a case of strangles and whether the humoral immune response provides much protection following infection? Um, there's not as much as I'd like, to be honest. I, I, there's some studies from the 80s and 90s that look at it, this. Um, they're mostly in foals, so there's little work on um, adult equids. 
um, and certainly not much in carrier animals. So it, it's hard to infer from that how age and body condition score and exposure and all these factors do interact. Um, but what those studies show are that um, six months after an initial infection, about three quarters of animals were um, protected from reinfection. So it suggests there is some um, response which continues. Um, but no animals were completely co- protected from clinical signs. But then this was a challenge study where they were given quite a high and quite a virulent dose. Um, and and um, as I said before, colostral antibodies from dams that have been exposed um, and also the IgA and IgG in milk can confer some protection um, by coating the upper respiratory tract and the um, oral mucosa until um, that would only last until the time of work um, weaning. Um, yeah, so there is some evidence that it protects. It's not quite clear how long this goes on for. Um, so we're going to move on to discuss a bit of diagnostic testing now. Um, in your review, you said that an average of 10% of cases become persistent. How would you approach these cases in terms of the diagnostic testing to find them? Yeah, um, so that 10% is may well be an underestimate. It, it's quite hard to know. Um, how many animals do sort of develop that persistent um, infection. Um, As in dealing with and diagnosing um, carry animals, so that was, again, one of the things we were looking at um, with this screening protocol. So they um, were testing for, um, they used a clinical examination, a quarantine period, of six weeks, um, paired serological testing using the dual target eye ELISA and um, guttural pouch lavage and endoscopy at around week six. And um, what we found was there was nothing on the clinical examination or blood work that would suggest um, anything about carrier status. And there was also no association between serology results and carrier status, and that was true at both cutoffs at the um, the borderline and the more conservative cutoff. Um, and it was also true on both sample one, which was done sort of on admission, and about week six when the second sample was taken. So all cases in that screening protocol were identified by guttural pouch lavage and um, guttural pouch endoscopy. So that really is the gold standard and can be used really effectively to identify these animals, allowing treatment. Um, And the guttural pouch endoscopy part of that is actually really important because it may well be that the bacteria has sort of died out, but there are still chondroids there. So you do need to have a a good sort of look around the guttural pouch um, because, I mean, everyone knows how infectious this uh, disease can be and it's just not really worth risking, even even if it's a low PCR, um, a uh, sorry, high CT value or even a negative result, it doesn't mean that that animal doesn't necessarily have some strep equi in there, which may go on to cause infection in other animals. So would you say that there is a place for the strangle serology in the one-off testing that seems to be done by livery yards trying to accept horses onto the yard or does that really bear any realistic resemblance of that status of that horse? So the serological test is um, indicative of recent exposure. 
So ideally, it's used um, with paired tests at least two weeks apart, so you can see whether the titer is rising or falling. Um, but it won't give you any indication of the carrier status. It will be about recent exposure. So it might tell you from the last few weeks this animal's been exposed, but it won't say whether it's got strep equi um, incubating or living in its guttural pouches. Um, and as I say, our, our, the study that we performed showed no association between ser serology result and carrier status. Um, and then you, you could not um, inform anything about carrier status on the basis of of that test, um, and certainly not of a single test now. Um, its main role would be sort of following an outbreak, and then from there you can see which animals were exposed, and then once you know who's exposed, you can then perform guttural pouch for the virgin endoscopy. Okay, and so in those outbreak situations then, um, people talk about a traffic light system. Could you maybe detail to our listeners what people mean by that and kind of how long you would put that in place for on a, on a yard with an outbreak? Yeah, um, so yeah, these can be quite complicated. You might have multiple veterinary teams involved with different animals. Um, so I think sort of setting expectations from the beginning that this isn't going to be yeah, a quick thing um, and sometimes assigning a clear leadership structure can be quite useful or a point of contact for owners. Um, so the first thing you do would be getting a thorough history of all animal and then from there trying to divide into, as you say, this traffic light system. So these three segregated color-coded groups. So red would be an animal you either know is exposed or um, has clinical signs consistent with strangles. Amber would be direct or indirect contact with exposed animals, and then green would be animals which are unexposed. Um, and then from there, you can manage these animals separately, keeping them at least sort of three meters distance apart, so there's no nose-to-nose contact. Um, and then it's really important to regularly monitor those unaffected animals. Um, so rectal temperature, as I said before, is often the first indicator um, of infection so that should be recorded ideally twice daily um, and ideally you'd keep equipment and staff completely separate for each of these groups um, and avoid cross-contamination or spread via fomites if it's not possible then you'd work from the lowest risk group so green and then to amber and then to red so you're not spreading that infection to the healthy animals um, and hopefully you won't be taking anything from the green to the red animals um, and sometimes simple things um, can be overlooked. So you need to um, sometimes train staff in basic biosecurity and basic nursing care, um, regularly disinfect water troughs and keep pets away from the farm, ensure suitable PPE is available and hand washing facilities um, alongside regular disposal of bedding and disinfection of um, contaminated areas. Um, diagnosis. Um, will be more done at the farm level, not with the individual level. It's not always necessary to know if every animal in that group has a laboratory diagnosis. If it is on a you know a, a yard full of strangles and it's got con clinical signs consistent with that, then that is um, usually good enough. And then following the resolution of infection, about three weeks after that, you want to be then testing for persistent infection. Um, and then if you have, if there is no gross pathology in the guttural pouch and no negative, uh, and sorry, a negative PCR result, then from there you can start thinking about opening up the yard and um, 
and yeah finishing off the outbreak yeah it's what everyone wants at the end of it definitely yeah. <laughs> um so obviously with it being a bacterial infection clients quite often would expect the vet to kind of reach for antibiotics as part of the treatment for these animals with active strangles cases um do you think that antibiotics are useful in these acute cases so antibiotics are not required for the vast majority of cases um the overuse can promote resistance, lead to complacency, and they should not be used preventatively. Um, so antimicrobial therapy does have a role in combating strangles infections. Um, but they need to be used really responsibly and only when clearly indicated. Um, so as I said, for the vast majority, they're not required, certainly not for mature horses. Um, so they can be used between initial exposure and abscessation, um, but that window is really hard to adhere to. Because the abscesses can be de- developed within days. You don't always know when that initial exposure happened. Um, and once the bacteria gets into the lymph node, then actually um, antibiotics are not helpful and they actually can sort of pause the progression of a disease. And when you stop the course, it just carries on from there. Um, so they can be used to um, try and decrease the size of these abscesses, but their effects are really limited following the detection of this lymphadenopathy. And so um, you mentioned using antibiotics appropriately. Um, if this was done based on kind of a culture and sensitivity from a guttural pouch wash, would you use antibiotics just in that local guttural pouch or do you think the horse needs to be on systemic antibiotics? So these persistent infections are typically treated with a mix of both topical and um, systemic antimicrobial therapy. Um, so that would be penicillin systemically and a gelatin and penicillin mix topically, which would be endoscopically guided. Uh, and that's been regarded as broadly successful. Um, it's also important to note that any purulent material, any chondroids do need to be completely removed for the elimination of the carrier state, which is certainly easier said than done. Um, there have been many attempts, well, there's been many strangles vaccines developed um, over the recent years. Um, is vaccination commonly used? Um, no, it's not really um, in this country. So the ideal strangles vaccine, you would want something which provides a high degree of protection against strep equi, a long duration of immunity, um, ideally intramuscular administration, and something which has DIVA capability. So some ability to differentiate infected from vaccinated animals um, and until recently there haven't actually been any vaccine which can fit all those requirements um, so previous attempts at vaccination haven't been able to um, differentiate infected from vaccinated animals um, there's been questions about how much protection they provide um, and they haven't been able to be administered intramuscularly um, but now there is a, a new Strangvac vaccine, um, which is a recombinant fusion protein vaccine. So it's using protein subunits. So there's no live bacteria or anything like that. Um, and that's administered intramuscularly. And because the protein subunits are separate, um, a, a distinct targets to what's used in the serological test, um, you can differentiate infected from vaccinated animals because vaccinated animals um, will not show up anymore on the serological test than um, unvaccinated animals. 
Um, and this vaccine has been shown to protect up to 94% of ponies um, from clinical signs of disease, which includes the development of abscesses in the retroferyngeal submandibular lymph nodes. Um, and that was when challenged two weeks post third vaccination. Um, so it still sort of needs to be evaluated a bit more in clinical practice, but initial um, field data suggests it's actually working really well. Um, and there's been suggests that maybe Streptococcus suepidemicus, which is really closely related to Streptococcus equi um, and can be involved in strangles cases, might be sort of acting as a natural booster, allowing um, this vaccine to work quite effectively in the field. Um, and it's also got had some use in resolving persistent infections or helping resolve persistent infections. And by giving a vaccine to an animal that's had this infection for a long, long time, to sort of give that immune system just a boost to help get it over the edge. That development does sound very promising. What um, kind of just wrapping up now, what sort of future work do you think is needed for us to further understand this respiratory pathogen going forwards? Um, yeah, I think looking at immunity is um, really important. I think understanding the role um, that the um, immune system plays in that interplay. I think there's been a lot of research looking at the pathogenic side, um, and that's quite a lot of research that I've um, been involved in amongst other lab groups. Um, but there hasn't been so much in, um, on how that's an interplay and how much of that is coming from the host side. Um, and also looking more generally into the wider microbiome of the guttural pouch. So looking at the interactions between Streptococcus equi, maybe Streptococcus suepidemicus, other bacteria that might be within the guttural pouch. Um, and and analyses that include um, that sort of wider view of the complexity and the dynamics within that quite unique environment, I think, um, is, is quite important going forward. Um, I also think more research is needed to look at the role of these Streptococcus um, cases in equine strangles and um, any related infection and um, sort of working out whether it acts as a primary or a secondary pathogen, um, whether and what circumstances are necessary for colonization um, to, um, and whether these, as I say, cause these strangle infections or whether, you know, strangles, uh, strep equi gets there, causes this infection, and maybe over time in, the streptococcus equi dies out and streptococcus can come in and take over that site and sort of um, come in that way. Um, but also whether our diagnostics and our management strategies that work for streptococcus equi um, are going to work quite as well for streptococcus. We will wait and see. Thank you for speaking to us this evening, Luke. It's been a really clear view on why strangles remain such a significant condition in horses today, and we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.